Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Mary Frances O'Connor is the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. This is one of our guest-hosted episodes by Allison Pataki. Mary Frances is an associate professor of clinical psychology and psychiatry at the University of Arizona. Her research focuses on the physiological correlates of emotion, in particular the wide range of physical and emotional responses during bereavement, including yearning and isolation. She believes that a clinical science approach toward the experience and mechanisms of grieving can improve interventions for prolonged grief disorder newly included in the revised DSM-5. Mary Frances O'Connor, author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, 
Thank you so much for being here this morning. I am so excited to speak with you about this incredible, important book. Welcome. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. Absolutely. So Mary Frances, you are a writer, a researcher, a professor, a mentor. You wear many incredible hats, and that makes you the perfect person to write this book. So can you tell us a little bit about the how and the why, the story behind the story of how you came to write The Grieving Brain? This has been a passion of mine for gosh, over two decades now, which kind of boggles my mind. So I've been studying grief, as you say, grief and grieving, as a clinical psychologist, as a neuroscientist. So I'm a professor at the University of Arizona, and my lab, which is called the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, the GLASS Lab, we call it, is really devoted to understanding, just as you said, sort of the why is grieving so hard, and why does it take so long, and how might it be working in the brain? Are there things about the brain that are making it easier or harder? But there's another piece of it too, which is that, you know, I feel really comfortable with people who are grieving. And I think largely that's because when I was 13, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so we had, you know, grief at home, so to speak. And she amazingly did not die until I was 26, which her oncologist called his first miracle. <laughs> but wow. it means that I just feel comfortable with people who are going through this. And so maybe that made it easier for me to do the, you know, by now hundreds of interviews that I've done with grieving people and try to map that onto what their physiology is telling us. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about in your book how when you share with people that you work with grief, and grieving, or when you're telling people that you're writing this book, a lot of us who are not as well-versed as you are, particularly in, in sort of Western culture, you say, we have this idea of the five stages of grief. And it, you say that it's presented to us as sort of this linear narrative with the forward marching heroic story where we end with acceptance. Yeah. And you say, that's not at all how grief works, the science and the brain and human behavior and experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was so fascinating. <laughs> it's, well, so many of your listeners may have heard of the five stages of grieving yeah. and, or the five stages of grief, as it was called. And Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I have total respect for. She was a female psychiatrist when there were not a lot of female psychiatrists. She actually was prevented from taking a faculty position twice because she was pregnant and she wrote, she raised children and, and so forth. So an amazing woman. Yeah. And she really, you know, her contribution was she gave us this revolutionary idea. You could interview people who were terminally ill, you know, which at the time in the 1960s was unheard of mm -hmm. to ask them what they were feeling and how they were coping. And so she did what all good scientists do initially was that she described what people were telling her, right? She gave us a, a very accurate description that people do experience depression. They experience anger. They even experience denial. And so the way I think about it now as we look back, because science has come a long way since 1969, yeah. is that she gave us a description of grief, mm -hmm. but that 
the idea that grieving, you know, that change over time, that it, you know, you do all of denial and then all of anger and all of, yeah. and you never go back again to those natural human emotions is just not accurate. And I think when we use it as a prescription rather than a description, then people get into trouble because they think, well, I haven't had a lot of anger. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Or, you know, I felt a lot of acceptance and now I'm having a day where I feel really depressed. You know, am I doing, am, am I doing something wrong? Yeah. And so we don't think of it as doing something wrong. We have more updated models that we often use now as looking at sort of the trajectory rather than these five stages, which are really yeah. five experiences people have. Yeah. And it, it, there's no set order. There's no checking one off and then you've graduated yeah. to the next level, right? Yeah. Can you talk about the difference between grief and depression? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think part of it is helpful maybe to start with distinguishing, I, you know, I've been using the word grief and the word grieving as though they're yeah. different. And most of us, you know, we use those interchangeably. Mm-hmm. This really came about from from studying, you know, what is it I'm studying? Am I studying grief here? I'm not getting the answers that I'm looking for about grieving. And so making this distinction became useful to me and I think has become useful to other people. So so grief is that natural response when you become aware that something so important to you is missing, right? Mm -hmm. It's that wave of feeling, it's those thoughts, it's that sort of unbearable awfulness. Yeah. And it recedes, right? It comes in waves. Grieving, on the other hand, is the way that that feeling of grief might change over time. So think about it this way. If I'm doing a scientific study of grief, I can ask you how you're feeling right now, for example, right? How much grief are you feeling? But if I want to study grieving, I have to ask you, how has your feeling changed from before to now, or from a long time before to, you know, this sort of change over time means that grieving is the way grief can become more familiar. It could become less intense, or those waves could be less frequent. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that grief goes away, because that's just the natural human response, right? When we're Mm -hmm. aware of missing someone. So I think that's useful because people often feel like, gosh, you know, I'm having this week where I'm just completely overwhelmed. And then they realize, oh, you know, this is the anniversary of when a loved one died. And we know, even in the research, we can see anniversaries, we see this big increase in grief. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your grieving. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It means this is a change in this moment of your grief. Yeah. And you talk about how we as humans can hold the knowledge, both truths at the same time, where we know that the loved one is gone. We know we miss them. We know we're grieving. But then we have these moments where we expect them to walk back through the door or where we expect them to show up to dinner with us. How does the brain do that? How do we as people hold both of those things? The brain is a uniquely fascinating organ that sort of is trying to help us. But the brain also has some limitations. And one of those strange limitations is it can be listening to two streams of information at the same time. So 
when we think about this in terms of bereavement, in order for us to have the feeling of grief, the feeling of loss, we first have to have the feeling of love, of bonding, right? Mm. And that bond gets encoded in our brain. Literally, physically, your brain has changed because you loved this person and they loved you, you know? And so part of what comes with that attachment is the belief, right? I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. And the important piece of that is the always part, right? It is impossible to imagine just going off to work every day if you didn't deeply believe that you would all come back together again at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. We have this deep belief. They're out there for me somewhere. You know, I'm thinking about them through the day. I know how I would get a hold of them if I needed to. So with attachment comes this everlasting belief, so to speak. Well, when we have the death of a loved one, Mm -hmm. there is, of course, this other set of information that the brain encodes, which are the memories, right? You may have been there at the bedside when a loved one was dying or when they passed away, or even you may have been at the funeral or memorial, right? So you have these memories. You know that the reality is that they're no longer on this earthly plane. But you can see then how these two streams of information conflict. On the one hand, because of this bond, you have this belief, they'll always be there, they're out there somewhere. And if they're not here, it just means I need to go get them. I need to find them and bring them back. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you also know they're not living. And Mm -hmm. so I think part of why grieving takes so long is that the brain takes a very long time to make sense of these two things. And maybe the most concrete way to think about it is the brain is always trying to make predictions for us, right? It's trying to predict what happens and it makes those predictions based on what's happened before. So say if you wake up next to your spouse for hundreds and maybe even thousands of days, right? You wake up they're next to you. Then on the first morning that you wake up and they're not there in the bed with you, it's actually not a very good prediction that they've died, right? So for a while, for your brain, it's as though they haven't died. There's a learning that has to take place to be able to predict their absence. And what does that absence mean for your life as opposed to the sort of habitual prediction of, and there they are, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet there will always be these triggers like a smell or coming across a shirt or something that will tell our brain that the person is there for a minute and then we have to re-remember, right? That's absolutely right. Handwriting is the thing for me. I'll come across something my mother wrote, you know, it'll fall out of a book or something. Yeah. And boy, in that moment, it just, she feels so alive, right? Yeah. Like she just wrote it and sent it. And that is just, that is how it works. The brain permanently encodes this bond, which maybe has a, a... a sort of, I mean, I actually take great comfort in the fact mm-hmm. that in a way she is a part of me, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's physically, yes, my she's brain is physically happy. including the fact yeah. that we we had a relationship, that we were yeah. so tightly bonded. And yeah. somehow carrying that around with me is very comforting. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're, we care about someone or we're close to somebody who's going through the grieving process, you're very comfortable with it. It's, you know, it's your world, but it can be hard. It can be challenging to see someone you love really struggling. And you talk about the prongs of empathy. What 
what can we do? What should we do to show empathy or to show up for someone who is grieving? This is a tricky one because while I say I feel very comfortable with people who are grieving, and that is true, people who are grieving, it's really hard, right? It mm-hmm. is really hard to watch someone who's suffering yeah. or who's really angry, right? I mean, grief brings with it a lot of anger, quite unintentionally, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like the person wants to feel angry. But, you know, there's often nothing you can do that won't make them angry. Mm -hmm. And so I think then it's incumbent on us a little bit to recognize, ah, for this person, they're just not themselves at the moment. And the emotion dial has just, on everything, has just been turned way up. So... You know, it's interesting to think about so many of our social sort of mourning practices. I think in some ways we're reminding other people, right? So you wear a black armband, for example. Reminding the people around you that they're having a different experience day to day than you are right now, you know? Mm -hmm. So a friend of ours, a friend in my sort of circle of friends, his mother had died maybe three months before this happened. And We were in a parking lot after something we'd been doing together and he got really angry and he said something really kind of mean to one of our Mm -hmm. friends and, you know, and everyone was sort of like, what the heck? What was that? You know, this Mm -hmm. is very out of character and it wasn't true. And, you know, and I said later to them, we have to remember that, you know, he is still grieving and, and everything is just raw right now. So when I think about being with people who are grieving... I think one of the biggest quagmires we get ourselves into is that as the person who wants to be supportive and wants to be kind, often our goal is sort of to cheer them up. Right, right. And unfortunately, think about it this way. If you're already not feeling yourself in the world, you're not... Now you also have this expectation that someone wants you to feel happy as well. Like, that's just a whole lot, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so sometimes I think if we can sort of change our mindset to, I'm just, I want to be with you, right? Yeah. I want you to know you're not alone and that I am open to however and whatever you want as this goes forward. Yeah. A friend of mine whose little boy died, she says, you know, we think the golden rule is the most important thing. Treat others as you would uh-huh. like to be treated. She says, there's actually a platinum rule. Treat others as they would like to be treated. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> right? That's so good. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't put the expectation or the burden onto them. Yeah you know, to then live up to whatever they're, they're expecting to receive from you. Yeah. That's so good. And you say grief is a door yep. through which we will all walk. And yeah. some of us earlier than others, some of us yeah. more often than others, but it yeah. is a universal human experience. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. It is, but it comes at different times, doesn't it? And yeah, in different yeah. ways. And mm-hmm. and we all have different sort of capacities for sharing and for disclosing and for supporting even. So, you know, it may be, often people say, it's not even that I need to talk, it's that I need someone to help me clean out the closet, you know, or I need someone to take my kids to the park because I just need some time. And so I think trying to ask people and not even just what can I do, right? Because that's pretty Mm -hmm. broad and doesn't Mm -hmm. always sound like an actual offer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So saying Mm -hmm. things like, hey, I know that Thanksgiving's coming up and that might be a really Mm -hmm. tough time for you. Is there some shopping I could do? I'm already going to be, you know, setting my own table. Is there any, could I come over and help with, you know, X? Can I, you know, take the kids on Wednesday so you can get, you know, giving kind of concrete examples of things that you might do um, and then letting them sort of decide. And I'll tell you, here's a great example. One of the students, I teach a psychology of death and loss class, and one of the students was telling a story about she and her boyfriend lived next door to this older couple, and the husband died in this older couple. And so the following Christmas, he had always put up Christmas lights on the house. Mm. And so mm. her boyfriend went over and said, hey, you know, I just, I, I wanted to offer, I'd be happy to put up your Christmas lights this year if you wanted. Aww. And she got really angry and said, I don't need that from you and sort of slammed the door. And he was like, oh, God, you know, what have I done? Yeah, yeah. And about 24 hours later, she came and knocked on the door and she said, I'm so sorry. You know, it just is so hard for me that he's not here, that I just reacted. But I would actually really love it if you would help me put up Christmas lights, you know? So I think that's a great example of both offering something. It doesn't always go well, but that's your not your last opportunity, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah, and, and extending the grace when there is anger yes. or there is an outsized reaction you might not have yeah. felt you expected. 
You talk about restoration to a meaningful life as a worthwhile goal or aspiration. Can you talk about what that means and what a meaningful life means? One of the models that we use more contemporarily that that many clinicians, I think, find very useful now is what we call this dual process model. And what it suggests is that on the one hand, we have all these stresses about the actual death, the actual loss, right? All these emotions Mm -hmm. and thoughts and, you know, what do we do now and all that? What do we do with those feelings? And those we call loss stressors. But we also have what they call restoration stressors, which is sort of, what does this mean for my life now? And who am I? And, you know, what is retirement supposed to look like if my spouse has died? Or mm-hmm. how am I supposed to parent if my co-parent is yeah. gone? You know, so mm-hmm. all of those, what does life look like now? And how do I, given that I am a person who has grief, how do I continue to have a meaningful life, to do meaningful things. And that takes a long time and a lot of courage and, frankly, a lot of support. So when I think about what is a meaningful life, I mean, what's interesting, of course, about this for me is I think that's a question we're all asking ourselves all the time, right? That doesn't Mm -hmm. only happen when a loved one dies. It's just that because when a loved one dies, you get the rug ripped out from under you things that previously felt really meaningful sometimes don't feel very meaningful anymore. Yeah. And so trying to figure out, okay, so what what is this like now? I think can come to, I, I think there's a couple of things that people can do. They can think about what it is they value kind of at its most basic. And that can be related to the person who's died. So, you know, what things do I know my mom would have been proud of me for doing, right? Mm-hmm. Or or even just how would she have done things? My mom was British, and so there are things I do, like, at the holidays because, you know, it reminds me of her. It's something she would have yeah. loved that I carried on. Yeah. So we can think about sort of values. or Or maybe it is, you know, I want to have a close family the way that my grandparents, you know, managed to do that. So coming up with things that are meaningful, kind of as a value, and then what would a person who valued that do? Part is both probably harder and also, um, again, I think often requires support, is experimenting, right? Like going out and trying something that you're not sure if it's going to make you very happy, but staying at home on the couch is definitely not making you happy. And so Mm -hmm. it may be worth trying something that could feel meaningful and probably trying it more than once. So the first time, you know, you go out to dinner with you know, your couple friends, if your spouse Mm -hmm. isn't there, the first time Mm -hmm. is probably not going to feel really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's probably going to be pretty hard. Mm -hmm. But then the second time you go, it may still be hard, but you may also think, oh, you know, but I'd never had that pasta before. And that was pretty good, you know. So it's sort of this slow upward spiral, I think, of what makes sense now, what works now. But you're only going to learn that by sort of trying things out. Yeah. So beautiful. So the grieving brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. Decades of research and work and expertise and interviews went into this book. If you could send readers away with sort of one token or nugget to carry with them, what would it be about the grieving brain and and from this beautiful book? I think probably 
<laughs> the thing I get most often as a question is, you know, someone describes something and says, is this normal? Should I be over this by now? Or should a friend be over this by now? And just really trying to give yourself some kindness. This is a door you walk through, but once you're through the door, there's no there's no end point. You are now a person who understands life differently than you did before. And so remembering that what you feel is normal and a lot of what you do is normal. And we can decide, okay, I do that pretty regularly. Do I want to do something different? Or I feel that pretty regularly. How am I going to manage the fact that I feel that? Those are really legitimate questions and things we can work with with ourselves. But the fact that you feel things intensely or that you believe things or or are motivated to do things that you're surprised by, that doesn't make them not normal. And so mm-hmm. giving ourselves some, some loving kindness that mm-hmm. this is really hard. This mm-hmm. just is really mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what you're experiencing is normal and you're going to find a way through. Because of what you just said and because of all that, this book feels in so many ways like a companion and in many ways sort of like a roadmap or a guide or a hand to hold, not only as we go through the experience of grieving, but just the experience of being human. Yeah. So thank you so much, Mary Frances. What advice would you have to aspiring writers? Oh, to aspiring writers. That's Mm -hmm. a great question. I think for me, what I've learned is you got to (laughs) write. It sounds really obvious, but you know, I write every morning and only on weekdays. I write, you know, for an hour every morning. And I I think this is the piece. When inspiration strikes, I will be at my desk and Mm -hmm. it will have a place to go, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not at your desk, you can't write it down. Absolutely. And as you said, first time might be hard. Keep doing it. Keep doing it right. And eventually you will get the inspiration down on the page. The Grieving Brain by Mary Frances O'Connor, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Mary Frances, how can readers connect with you and learn about your journey with this? I have a website at maryfrancisoconnor.org and also I'm on Twitter at Dr. MFO. So reach out. Wonderful. Mary Frances O'Connor, The Grieving Brain. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing this book, sharing this book, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for bringing this conversation to people. Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.